He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney. He is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, March 13, 2021. It is supposed to be snowy, but we had a great week. I did. I got my second shot on March 11th on the 365th day of the pandemic, the one-year anniversary. I did it in a kosher way because even though you may think I'm youthful, I frequently speak about being part of the GW class of 1974, which means somehow I made it to 65. And now I have a good chance of staying alive. So do all of us who have made it this far. I've got a great show to entertain you this week. Mitchell Byers is an outstanding reporter for the Boulder Daily Camera. And he was right in the heart of the riot on the Boulder Hill last Saturday. I know Mitch. You will get to know him a lot better. He is interesting. So is our troubadour, Dave Gunders, who happened to be a freshman back during Vietnam War and a little kerfuffle that got out of hand on the hill in Boulder. That one was a little more righteous because they were protesting the Vietnam War. Our troubadour has a perfect song for riot conditions. Tear up time. Things got torn up at about 10th in Pennsylvania in Boulder. Adrienne Benavidez, she knows all about Boulder. She went to CU, CU Law. She is now a state representative for Adams County. She's held a variety of roles as an attorney as an official with the city and county of Denver. It's her first time in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, and it gets great. Let's start, though, with Mitchell Byers and find out what the heck is going on in Boulder, Colorado. Thank you. The mob mentality demonstrated by a large group of students on the Hill last week was an affront to our community on multiple levels. I'm embarrassed and angry, but most of all saddened by what occurred. The selfish, foolish, and illegal actions of those students who represent a small fraction of our student body have tarnished our university's reputation. They chose to violate public health orders during a global pandemic, potentially endangering thousands of others and some committed crimes that will be prosecuted and include expulsion without readmission. This is a reversal of fortune because I feel fortunate anytime Mitchell Byers calls me from the Boulder Daily Camera. He's generally going to ask me about a criminal case in Boulder County, and I'm pleased to comment for him because he gets it and he writes well. And he's an asset to the community. Mitchell Byers, welcome to the show. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. 
Mitchell, let's not bury the lead. That CU riot last Saturday, you were in the heart of it. Some people said you started it just to be, you know, <laughs> so in the middle of it. How did you accomplish that? Well, it was my day off, and we typically have someone, one person on duty, but she was not able to get to uh, Boulder in time. So, you know, I live in Boulder, so once I realized this was going on, it was, it was relatively easy for me to get over there. Now, you know, I wasn't there at the start of it, but I was able to get there by about 8 o'clock, I think is when I arrived on scene. Okay. I've lived in Boulder. I've had court cases in Boulder. Getting around town is not that easy. Do you live in proximity to the famous Boulder Hill? Maybe a five, a five to eight minute drive away. Okay. That's Boulder action at its best. Now, aren't you the guy who had a story a couple days prior about some disturbance, some fellas getting a party going on the hill as the weather turned nice? Yes. So a week before the riots on the hill, there was there was another large party. This one was in a complex and it stayed in the complex. But yes, uh, there was another large party the week before that police ticketed and the county health department issued some notices on. Now, how long have you been in Boulder? Counting being a student at CU uh, since about the fall of 2007. And when you heard there was a riot on the hill, did you kind of know just where to go? Yeah, <laughs> I knew the general area. And then uh, once I parked, the fireworks and the noise made it pretty easy to find. I have a troubadour on this show, and he is a CU guy, and he was there in 71. We're going to get the lowdown on what caused that riot on the hill. But there have been many riots, full-on riots, sort of like this snowstorm we're anticipating. How do you grade this riot? <laughs> um, well, it was nothing I've seen before in my time here. You know, it, it was both in the numbers and in just sort of how brazen. And, in you know, this is the first time we've seen large parties on the Hill. You know, we've seen some maybe some smaller riots. But this is the first time, at least for me, that I've seen such a large crowd that was just so brazen in how they were just drinking in the middle of the street i mean you know vandalizing cars things like that it's it's nothing i've ever seen in my time here so that would be since 2000 like i said 2007 so yeah nothing i've seen before in my time either as a student or as a as a reporter here all right forgive the prosecutor and me but i've studied you mitchell byers i'm impressed because you are candid on twitter you are funny like kyle clark you show your personality, and as I recall, you like beer. So does Kyle Clark, and you talk about it, and it's your day off. It's a beautiful Saturday, and I'm wondering, were you expecting to be covering this, or are you 24-7? You know, living in Boulder, you, you do, you know, especially for you know on the weekends with only one other reporter. You know, there are times when I'll get called in. Now, when the weather turned nice, I was thinking maybe we'd see something. I didn't think this was going to happen yet. I thought, if anything, we'd see it maybe St. Patrick's Day weekend. I, I did expect we'd see some sort of partying on the hill, 
I didn't think it was anything I was going to get called in for. All right, give us the TikTok. You are senior enough. You can assign yourself this story. You just call your boss and say, hey, or you start <laughs> tweeting about it. How does it work? No, I, I mean, I, I don't really assign it. Um, I, I What I did is I did, you know, email in and say um, this is going on. And they had already, they had already known. And, you know, I, I think their social media posts were going up on this as soon as, you know, about six o'clock. So they, they had kept it on. And then once it became clear that someone was going to have to come in, my editor called me and then we had a discussion and then it just made sense for me to be the one who went, like I said, because I, I live in the area and, you know, and breaking news is my thing anyway. So it just made sense for me to head over. So what time did you get there? I think I got on scene, like I said, a little before eight, I want to say. So not at the very beginning and I was not there for any of the flipping the car or any of that, but I was on scene at about eight o'clock. So I was there when police responded with the SWAT vehicle at about uh, nine o'clock. And you tweeted that. So that demand by the police that you recorded, this has been declared a riot. You need to disperse. Had you ever heard anything like that in your over a decade at CU and Boulder? I don't believe so. I think the closest I've ever come was, and calling it a riot is probably technically true, but it wasn't anywhere near this size. The, the only thing I covered that was close was Actually, I had a concert a while back on the Hill that got a little out of hand. But that's the only thing that I can think of in, you know, in recent memory. That Well, describe this scene. How many people and what were the percentage of people out of control and people who were just kind of there? So it was, I think when I got, you know, police estimated about 500 to 800, I think at its peak. When I was there, I think it was probably closer to that that 500 number maybe it didn't seem like it, it was as crowded as as it was at the peak when you know we were seeing some photos about just you know the entire street being flooded everyone was drinking but at this point the crowd was relatively you know they, they weren't actively flipping anything when i was there but when police came i'd say about a hundred people were truly confronting the SWAT vehicle. Uh, some did run when the when the SWAT uh, vehicle came, but I'd say a hundred or more that stayed to really confront police and led to that that standoff that we saw. We did see it, just like we saw the insurrection at the Capitol. This was not on that scale, but it was kind of right the way it happened. Were you thinking about that? Like, wow, these are a lot of angry pent-up people and they are acting like animals it sort of came to mind you know obviously i wasn't at the capitol so i, I don't have anything firsthand to compare it to it has been interesting in how we've gone about identifying people in sort of the same way you know with the releasing releasing all the social media photos and and everything like that yeah i was gonna ask you about that at the boulder daily camera do you have any compunction about showing those photos and assisting police what if people said hey 
that guy was just there. He didn't do anything. Now you've shown his picture. What do you guys do about that? Yeah, and we've we've talked about that. Our our stance on that is, you know, if police are releasing a photo specifically saying we believe that this person was involved, you know, in, in not just being there, but you know, police have been releasing photos of people that they believe were either involved in property damage or violence. So those photos we do believe contain some matter of public interest. You know, so we've been getting emails about, you know, saying, hey, this here's a TikTok or here's a tweet of this guy on the hill. We haven't been releasing, though, all, you know, every single one we get individually because, you know, we don't know exactly what a person did while they were there. So what we've been doing is saying, OK, look, if police released a photo and said, hey, this person is suspected of not just being there, but doing something that, you know, may warrant serious charges, we do believe that then that's in the public interest that we do identify that person. It's kind of personal for you because I saw a picture of a guy who had a pleasant expression, looked like he was raised in Hawaii and he had a beard. And I think it was you. I mean, I bet there are pictures <laughs> of you, right? At the scene of the riot because you were there as a reporter. And of course, some people at the Capitol are saying, hey, I was a journalist. That's going to be the defense of some. I know you didn't do anything. Plus, if you are in trouble, I'll be your criminal defense attorney. But <laughs> were you frightened while you were there? Did you think, whoa, there's a wave of violence that may come toward me? Or was there any, you know, crazy anti-media bias? That certainly was part of the capital insurrection. It wasn't maybe anti-media bias as much as, so, you know, I had a mask on and I did wear, I wore a media, like I wore a lanyard with my press credentials on it. I wasn't trying to sneak up on anybody, but I did have a mask on and I was, you know, I was taking photos, not necessarily of people, you know, people's faces, but I did have a lot of kids come up to me and say, hey, what are you doing? Because it was pretty clear that, you know, based on, you know, both how I was dressed and, you know, what I was doing, that I was not you know, there for the party. So I did have a lot of kids come up to me and ask me what I was doing, why I thought I could take pictures. Most of them just ended up saying, okay, when I told them who I was, some of them did get mad. I had to, you know, inform them that, look, you're in the middle of the street. There's no expectation of privacy. I'm just doing my job here. So there was that, but I never felt any of them, you know, not, none of them really got mad to the point where I, I was concerned. And as far as my safety, you know, I, I was more concerned, frankly, just about the large crowd and, you know, catching something. You know, obviously, we're still we're still battling the pandemic. And then when the truck came, because of how the crowd was, I was sort of stuck in between a house. So I never, I guess I never thought that I was going to get too caught up in, you know, the actual scene over that. Was there an obvious anti-police, anti-firefighter mentality in the crowd? No, not really. There were there were some who were saying, you know, who, who were shouting some things that were anti-police in general. But for the most part, you know, the sentiment was just anger that they were breaking up the party, not necessarily anti-police feelings in general is what was happening. Michael Doherty was my guest about two weeks ago. I know he got pissed when this happened. It was black mark on CU. And it's not just the tipping over cars and damaging 
public property. It's the COVID. It's the fact that we're all supposed to be taking precautions. See, Boulder is barely getting back to normal, and then they do this. Wasn't that part of the reason this was so troubling? Yeah, yes. I mean, this is, you know, we've been, this is a year now, you know, and the Friday, you know, the day before this happened, we, all the departments and cities around the state, you know, a lot of them held memorials and, you know, moments of silence, you know, for the thousands of people who have died as a result of this disease. And, you know, then the next day we have this large maskless gathering, you know, and that's, yeah, that's just not something that we, we can have. Obviously, you know, we're a year into this, so we know what we're doing, and yet this this still happens. So, um, yeah, no, COVID definitely was a was a big part of why the community, I think, is uh, has been so mad about this. Right, but that's why the kids are so pent up. They've been in for so long, and it's a beautiful day in Boulder, and maybe they came from out of state, and hey, my friends are doing this, then they get a little alcohol in them. I just hope they're not too harsh. Maybe it's the parent in me. I'll have two kids in college coming up next year, and I don't want some minor infraction to lead to their ruination. Do you think some kids are going to be ruined by this? So Boulder Police and CU have made it pretty clear that they're going to concentrate on those who one instigated or or participate in any sort of violence toward first responders and then those who damaged property and then those who hosted the party while those who you know i, I can't speculate ultimately as to what they'll face but they they made it very clear that that's our priority we're not you know people who were just there while that's not you know what we want you know they they've made it very clear that Look, our priority is finding and, you know, identifying students who, you know, participated in violence and property damage, and that that was their emphasis. What a legendary part of Boulder, the hell. There are so many stories to be told, but there are real people who live there in homes they pay a lot for. Right there at 10th, it's got to be a mix of students and residents. As you go up higher, you get toward the Ramsey house, what? 700 block 15th street and it keeps going up the area where the riots are how would you describe it are there some people just trying to raise a family there or is it a war zone you know the, the hill is yeah it's it's mixed it's mixed living and you know while we were while i was on scene there were people in houses and not just you know not just older people but even students who were you know on their porch trying to yell at the kids saying hey look this is you know this is not what we want this is not good so yeah no there were there were definitely residents of all ages and all backgrounds who you know were were definitely mad at this and you know mad that their neighborhood was for a night you know turned into this this sort of scene and and after that obviously it was just a mess i mean you've seen i'm sure the photos of how much you know just trash there was i it was it, it was just destroyed as far as just the amount of garbage and glass and damage everywhere it was uh, it was it was something it was something to see you know what the solution is to all of that <laughs> what is that it's the blizzard that's coming 
mean, <laughs> just covered yeah, in snow. I mean, that's God's <laughs> way of saying, settle down because I am hopeful. I just got my second dose. I may not look that old, but I did it by the books. And now a couple of weeks from now, look out world, here I come. And a lot of people have that feeling. Everybody's starting to get dosed and it's pent up. You can feel it, can't you, Mitchell? And and I think that's where some of the frustration, especially with you know, with the students came now, where is you know, if you people can see the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, the, the, these these restrictions, while they are, you know, no one likes them. I think people are seeing that there is an end to them. And that's why it was so frustrating to have all this happen so close to to that end point. And yeah, like you said, I don't think we'll be dealing with that this weekend, thanks to uh, Mother Nature, uh, at least on, on the type of scale we saw last weekend. It's like the horse seeing the barn. But speaking of snow, I'm following you in the Boulder Daily Camera, and you are writing about this storm. Is it a dud? Here we are. It's uh, 4.20 p.m. on Friday before the big storm. Your prediction, what's the latest? So everything we're seeing is that it's going to snow and it's going to be, you know, it's not going to be a, a little snow. It's, you know, we're looking at around, you know, anywhere from nine to, you know, 12 plus inches. Now, some of the, uh, the predictions we were seeing earlier in the week, obviously on the high end, you know, people talking about measuring the snowstorm in feet. That's pretty clearly not what we're looking at, but it's still going to be, a pretty significant storm and you know and obviously we hope everyone out there stays safe and uh yeah but it'll, it'll, it won't be quite uh the uh legendary stuff that people were talking about on social media earlier this week but it'll it'll be enough to right. uh to temporarily kind of uh, put a halt to things telling your jokes on twitter because you are <laughs> the guy from hawaii and you're giving everybody tips on how to deal with the snow and it's funny as hell but in order for it to be amplified, it really has to be the storm of the century. Tell us about your Hawaiian upbringing. That's interesting right there. Yeah, no, I was born and raised on the Big Island, so did not deal with snow much growing up. What part of the Big Island? Kona, so uh, the South Kona side. Um, for any of you who know where the uh, Captain Cook Monument is, I, I live in that town. Nice. Do you still consider that home? Are you going to be rich and famous and live Colorado and Hawaii? <laughs> well, considering I'm a journalist, I, I don't know about uh, rich or famous, but I, I still think of that as home uh, in a way. Uh, I haven't been there in a while because of the pandemic, but that's where all my family still resides. And how did you find your way to uh, Colorado and what attracted you to journalism? Uh, you know, ever since I think eighth grade, I've wanted to be a journalist. You know, I've always enjoyed writing, always enjoyed the news. And so, you know, CU just at the time had a separate journalism school, one that I wanted to go to. So, yeah, that's how I ended up here in Boulder. And then from college, interned at the Denver Post. And then as a result of that, uh, landed here at the camera. And I've been here ever since. What? in the world was going on in eighth grade that made you want to be a journalist must have been was it a was it a role model did you get assigned mm. to do a report and you liked it no i just always uh well it started actually with uh sports i was a big you know sports journalism fan 
but even that, even aside from that, you know, I was, I was maybe a weird kid. I, I loved reading the news, the local newspaper in the morning. I was like that too. And honestly, back then, journalism was a prominent career. You went into an office, you were treated with respect, you got paid well. It was pre-internet. The classified supported it. And we need great journalists like you. And it's nothing really to kid around about because, one, if you keep covering riots, you will get a movie deal eventually. So don't worry <laughs> about anything there. But it's a shame that journalism, I'm sure you make a living, you live in Boulder, but you're not going to get rich. What are the rewards that you get out of it? Well, you know, like I said, I I just, you know, I enjoy the job. So that's that's the first thing. And then, you know, I... I especially enjoy, you know, reporting on a community I live in. I've oh, that's always been what I wanted to do. I never wanted to be one of those, you know, someone who, you know, lived in in a town and then, you know, commuted to another town to report on it. Even though I realize that's the reality of what most people have to do. But you know, I always wanted to to stay in, you know, one a, a no not a not a big city, but I always you know, want to stay in a a town or a city and report on it and really follow stories and you know follow the people and the issues that are important here so you know for me that that's it you know especially now with uh social media i you know i really enjoy that i get to interact with people you know and provide them news but also you know like i said get to know them a little better getting let them get to know me so yeah i know i really enjoy that aspect of it if i can be so bold it seems to me you are a perfect fit then for Boulder, which is just the right size, where you can get to know the whole community. It's big, but it's doable. Denver's a little more unwieldy. But Boulder with the daily camera and that tradition, you get to cover all sorts of things, everything from snow to crime. And boy, do you guys have crime stories. And that's why... I could tell you are better than most journalists. You have a natural curiosity and you are smart as hell. Did you get that in Hawaii or at CU Journalism <laughs> School? Because I have to tell you, those of us who grew up on Sean Benet, we remember Michael Tracy. We remember all the intrigue involving CU and its School of Journalism. Was that too far before your time or do you know about that? That was a little before my time. I I did not know much about the John Bonet case before I came up here because of just my age. But I've been lucky, you know, not only did I I have some, you know, great professors at CU Boulder, you know, I had a lot of internships along the way, including one in, you know, like I said, at that hometown paper that I used to read back in Hawaii. I had a lot of, uh, you know, different people who helped me along the way, uh, you know, at the Denver Post uh, and a couple of other different stops along the way so i've been really lucky and yeah boulder's kind of about you know it's it's a perfect size for me it's not so big that i can't follow the stories i want and that i don't know people and and sources but it's big enough that i am never looking for for something to do or that you know i'm never bored so no it's been a great spot for me and have you thought about the fact that right now the whole political power corridor seems to be in boulder with Jared Polis, a Boulder guy, and then Jenna Griswold just up the road in Estes Park, and Phil Weiser, who made a great name for himself as dean of the CU Law School in Boulder. I just think that Boulder is an exciting place to be, 
And when it comes to crime, Jean Benet was sensational. But just in the last decade, you've covered some gruesome cases. I know because you called me about it and I said, ooh. And then I read about them more in the Boulder Daily Camera and I call you back. What cases stick with you? There have been, you know, I've, I've covered quite a few. I don't know that any of them, been, you know, really stick out, especially to me, maybe. I think, um, you know, one that I'll always remember is the Michael Clark trial, just because it was one of the first I covered. But, you know, we've, I've, I've covered quite a few now at this point. Remind me what Michael Clark did. It was a uh, cold case shooting, actually. Um, police used uh, some, some DNA evidence to to eventually issue a warrant on on a person who had been a a suspect all along but i remember but that was my first my first trial uh, as far as you know covering a case gavel to gavel and uh so you so that one kind of you always remember your first one i mean i was lucky enough to get to train stan garnett in the denver da's office when i was a chief and he was a deputy and he was a powerful guy as the boulder da and i've interacted with michael doherty how much do you interact with those guys? Um, you know, just obviously just based on my job, I interact with, you know, both prosecutors and defense attorneys all the time. Defense attorneys, they're probably a little less happy about it. But uh, <laughs> like I said, that's one of the benefits of being, you know, a reporter in one place for so long. You know, I I walk well. I used to walk into a courtroom. Now I tune into a courtroom, you know, but uh, I know all the lawyers. Uh, they know me. They know what to expect from me. And, you know, I, I think, you know, I've reached a point where, you know, most of the attorneys who are regulars in Boulder know what I'm about. They know uh, what I'm doing. And for the most part, I think they acknowledge that I'm just trying to do my job, same as uh, I acknowledge they're doing the same. So I'm pretty lucky here in Boulder that between, you know, the the judges, and the attorneys, you know, I deal with a group of people who, like I said, largely respect what I'm doing if they're not always happy about it, you know, but, but you know, respect what I'm doing and allow me to do my job. Wow, that's sensational. I always thought that Denver was too big when there would be a murder and a murder trial and it wasn't even covered in the local press. Do you know what I mean? Do murders happen in Boulder and court trials and it's not even covered? No, that's that's not something, you know, maybe not. I think we haven't been able to cover murder trial maybe from, you know, beginning to end. Right. But, you know, but yeah, every single, you know, murder case that I can recall that has happened during my time, we've covered at least, you know, in, in some fashion. And, you know, going, yeah, going back to the point, I never wanted to live in a place where I was doing briefs on murders. But you can see that happens in big cities, and that's just not your cup of tea. Boulder suits you. And what about sports? Are you buffs all the way? And you tell me, or do you have loyalty to some other teams? Well, growing up in Hawaii, I'm a University of Hawaii guy. So if I'll admit when when University of Hawaii plays CU, I will root for the University of Hawaii. But no, I, I, I root for the buffs as a... And like I said, as a graduate and someone who, who went to their games, you know, in school, like like a lot of other students. So I, I, and I still follow them, you know, both, you know, living in town and, you know, following the, the good work that our sports team and our sports journalists do. Like I said, I, I grew up thinking I was maybe going to be a sports journalist. So it, it, I still, 
you know, love to watch their coverage of, of all the local sports. Well, you know, there's a great tradition of people bouncing back and forth. Mike Litwin, Woody Page, they've gone from sports to regular and all of that. And here's your CU Hawaii connection. CU had a kicker out of Cherry Creek named Eric Goodman, A-R-I-K. I don't know if you remember. He kicked the winning field goal against West Virginia in a big win about 10, 12 years ago. But his father, Curtis, who went to George Washington High School with me, class of 74, he went to the University of Hawaii and was one of their first soccer-style kickers with great success for the what are they, the Rainbow Warriors? Yes. See, thank you for he's gonna <laughs> he's gonna thank me for that story. But there are some Colorado Hawaii connections, and I think about Pat Bolin, the owner of the Broncos. He had connections, but I guess that was to Oahu. But just tell us what it's like to be a Hawaiian and living over here. And what are your aspirations? Surely you're gonna be owning the Boulder Daily Camera pretty quick here. What? Three, four, <laughs> five years. What are your aspirations? You, you know, uh, I don't think I'll be owning the paper anytime soon. You know, uh, frankly, I, I'm doing what I love to do right now. So, you know, as long as I can afford to keep doing that, um, I will. Now, as you've mentioned, unfortunately, I don't know if that's long term what I'll be able to do for much longer. Right now, I'm I'm just kind of enjoying what I'm doing right now. You know, I. I have some additional roles of the reporter now I'm doing more of these days with interns and things like that. And I really, you know, enjoy that since people work with me as an intern. So just trying to work on that, you know, maybe, maybe a move back to Hawaii is in, in store in the future. It's hard to tell weekends like this is when I really wish I was back in Hawaii, but during the summer, obviously, I still love it here. So yeah. And one, I will say the pandemic has also made everything, you know, a little, uh, a little up in the air, but uh, yeah, we'll we'll see see where where it ends up taking me. It's so good of you to spend this much time with me. In your heart of hearts, you are like me. I'm hoping this snowstorm isn't dead. I hope so. <laughs> isn't that what you're hoping? Or would you like to tell people back on the Big Island? Oh my gosh, four feet! You can't believe it. I was here for a bunch of big ones. But I hope this isn't going to be one. Uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm closer to that. Um, you know, I've 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 come to grips with the fact there will be snow. I could do without uh, that much snow, especially uh, you know, especially right now with everyone already stuck inside. I don't know if uh, seeing you know two feet of snow outside is what they're looking forward to. But uh, that's just me personally. Like I said, not being a not being a snow guy, but uh, I'll be inside and likely reporting on it anyway. So uh well, stay warm, stay healthy. The temperature is supposed to be pretty high. I say two weeks from now, you are going to cover some more riots in Boulder. Good luck. <laughs> All right. I appreciate it. Mitchell, really appreciate the time. Stay safe, stay warm. And thanks again. No, thank you. Bye now. All right. I had to guess that's one of the biggest topics that must come up in your practice. How can I provide for my kid's education, my grandchild's education? And aren't there some tax benefits to doing that in certain ways and not others? There can be. Depending on how you structure a trust, you can 
get a tax break on your taxes now. You can get a tax break on any estate tax in the future. So let's say that Donald Sturm has $2 billion, which I don't know if he's, how much he's worth now. You know, a lot. But let's say he's got $2 billion, and he decides to donate all $2 billion to some sort of charities, whether it be the University of Denver School of Law or something like that. Well, if you have, you know, the estate tax limit is $11.7 million. So anything above $11 million would be taxed as an estate. So that would mean if he's got $2 billion and, you know, 40% estate tax, there's going to be something like, you know, $800 million worth of estate tax. He says, well, I don't want to pay that. So I'm going to donate all of it to charitable causes. Well, a donation to a charitable cause is going to be exempt from the estate tax. So then he wouldn't have to pay any estate tax. You know, I don't know if he's that charitably minded. And there's there's certainly a lot of other sophisticated techniques to use to get around estate taxes. But if you're charitably inclined, it certainly can give you quite a tax break, either from an estate tax perspective or an income tax perspective, depending on how you structure things. It's all about planning. That's why I'm so glad I discovered you, Michael. And I get nothing but great feedback. I feel good about sending people your way because it means they can check that off their box of what needs to be done. And they need a steady, reliable person like you. Give out your contact information one more time. Sure. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. That's how you get a hold of me. I mean, my, my website is michaelbaileylawllc.com. And again, that's michaelbaileylawllc.com. You can get a hold of me that way too. Now, back to the Craig Silverman Show. Craig. Mr. Troubadour, Dave Gunders, you've done it again. <laughs> what I do this time? You wrote another sad breakup song. <laughs> Well, how are you, Craig? I'm good, but your songs are a little melancholy lately. Are you okay, or is it just <laughs> the luck of the draw? I think it's the luck of the draw. Anyway, I know you're excited because you like the elements. You like water, wind, rain, sun, snow. You are looking forward to a big snowstorm. I think you're going to be disappointed, but... Tell everybody what you think about Big Snows, and then tell everybody about our five-day challenge. The five-day challenge was we came up with just a couple days ago, promising each other to walk every day, regardless of the snow. Because the idea being that when it storms like this in a big storm, you got to be out there to experience it. So I knew my buddy would rise to the occasion. I have committed to it, and we're two days in. We're going to go walking on Friday night. No big deal. I think Saturday and Sunday are going to be the challenges. I look forward to it. You bring your snow shovel. You could do my sidewalk while we walk by. Hey, yeah, no problem. Remember how I told you in our neighborhood they're having that chicken war on East Hamden? Right. You told me about that. I'm excited. There's this place called Raising Canes. I went to the one on South Colorado. Then they had the grand opening, and I'm all about firsts. So I went there. I met the PR manager, and I said, hey, looks like you got a chicken war here, and people can go to Chick-fil-A or here. 
to Raising Cane's. And would you come on my podcast? And he said, yeah, I'd like to this and that. And then he talked to corporate. You know what happened? They nixed it. They got chicken. <laughs> I can't really imagine why. Craig, it would have been a good interview. We would have learned a lot about Raising Cane. I would have gotten off more chicken jokes than you can <laughs> shake your drumstick at, but that's okay. You're getting them in anyway. A little bit, but yeah. what a good marketing plan because people go to Chick-fil-A on the weekend. They say, oh, it's Sunday. Oh, but look, Raising Cane's. And it's got to be a little bit of a dig as religious as Chick-fil-A is. Raising Cain, isn't that like raising hell? It is. And, and who was Cain? Uh, who raised him, Adam and Eve? And what did he do, kill his brother? That's right. What kind of parents raised him? I know. I never considered Cain as a name for my kid, but... No, wouldn't be proper. Now I have the key question. It's the theme of the week. You are a historic figure in this drama. They had a big riot last Saturday on the Hill in Boulder. People said it was big, but you had to be there in 1971. And our troubadour, Dave Gunders, was there. Am I right? Yes, but I'm not sure we can compare these two. Just Craig. tell us about your experience. What did you do? What did you do in 71? Well, we marched from Farron Hall, where I was attending school. I was a freshman in the dorm there. And, you know, at that point, I think it was a, it was a, this was a protest against the, you know, the Vietnam War. And it may have been, as I think about it, it may have been the time when we were secretly making forays into Laos or maybe Cambodia. Do you remember what the triggering event was? You think it was something like going into other countries I yes. did a little research. Secretly, yes. Somebody on Twitter said that they put a military recruiting spot on the Hill, and you students didn't like this. This was during the Vietnam War. It was, and um, you know, my, my contemporaries, this wasn't our first, you called it a riot. It wasn't our first protest. I had protested in other places against the Vietnam War. Well, that's good on you, as history turns out. but. What is it about that area of the hill in Boulder? You've played gigs there. You've been there a lot. I think you lived there for a while. When you hear about a riot in Boulder, do you know just where I'm probably talking about? Yes. Where? It's the hill. Just yeah. above the where the storefronts are? Nearby. Yeah. You know, Fraternity Row and all of that. But I mean, in this case, I think we're talking, you know, rebels without a cause, just full of piss and vinegar and probably, you know, the pandemic and some of the frustration, you know, that everybody's experienced is probably loosening up now and giving rise to that kind. This was, but I mean, I didn't hear too much about it. Craig, you told me about it, but it sounded more like an alcohol-fueled event. Yes. What about in 71? Was it more righteous? Not so. No, no, we had a purpose. I mean, you know, I mean, we were, we were doing it for a reason. I mean, personally, I... I, I mean, there were some people who went, who did go, get out of control then. In fact, for people who know that area in Boulder, when you pass the Boulder bookstore, it's got cinder block where there was once huge picture windows. I think that was probably the time, and I doubt there's been windows since that time. It was in that 1971, it might have been 72, Craig, 
during that protest, some kids got out of hand and threw rocks at the police and also, you know, just busted all the windows at the Boulder Bookstore for whatever reason. After that, Boulder Bookstore owners got got smart and didn't want to didn't want to put up with that anymore. They bricked it up. That's the way downtown Denver is starting to be. But I love this song, Tear Up Time. But the first time I looked at it, I thought it was Tear Up Time. Right. And it, that word can be, it. that spelling can apply to either meaning. Tear up or tear up. Right. I like the idea of tear up, the idea, although I saw people would read it as tear up time, and it is kind of that, but it's even more powerful because it's, I tried to conjure up the idea of, of really pulling roots from a, a long-term relationship. You have that beautiful lyric about roots tangled together, but mm. it's an extraordinary song and a concept. When I think of something being torn up, I think of Nancy Pelosi after Donald Trump's last State of the Union. Remember how she tore that speech in two? Is that what you're talking about? What an well, expression, tear up time. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't what I was talking about until now, <laughs> but I'll go with it. Yeah, it's a complete dismantling of, you know, a relationship. I like it. And of course, you bring tears into it at the end. All the elements of a Dave Gunder song. If you listen to the end, and I have several times because I love it, the tears flow into the river. Because this one, unlike last week when you fought me about the song that I correctly interpreted, Only a Rock in the Road. You have to give it to me. This song, Tear Up Time, there ain't no coming back on this one. There's no coming back on this one. No. No, that's true. I think we we agree for once, Craig. Yes, we do agree. I think we've got to let everybody hear it. But before we do, I think there's a classic slow dance song. Most of your songs are rocking, but this starts off slow. And I want to talk about the music because I cannot plays all the instruments. I hear a guitar. I hear an organ. But at the end, the eerie notes at the end, what instrument is that? That's my Stratocaster. Those are the, that's just my my soloing, you know, single string soloing on a strat. That's really cool. I liked it a lot. And I feel like this has some Springsteen influence in it. Well, that is a compliment. I probably don't deserve it, but yes, Bruce, Bruce is great for, you know, I think of the river and, you know, that album and he, he had, well, and that song, the river is, is a sad song um, about his, his, uh, well, I guess his reckoning um, of a relationship from many years prior. If, if you remember that song, it's a great song. Well, let's thank some happier thoughts. It's going to yes. be a snowy <laughs> weekend. Yes. Slow dance. The first one you ever had. Who was it with? And what was the song? It was probably Michelle Demme, and, and I have no idea. But I could I could lie and, and come up with something. I have one. Sid Primack, Hey Jude, which starts off slow, and then it gets going, and then you have a decision to make. Do you, right. do you let go or not? Or do you really start rocking together? Yeah, well, you never let go. <laughs> I'm going to let everybody listen to this great song, Tear Up Time by Dave Gunders. Thank you, Troubadour. Enjoy this snowy weekend. Thanks, Craig.
has it been since things were right, dear? Never a brighter light, and everything just went blue. We beyond hope, people do it all the time, and follow that crooked line, and I do the same for you. Tear up time, thinking those days gone forever. I'm searching inside, and it's tear up time again. Yeah, I'm looking way back. It's tear up time. Follow my feet on down to the river. Water runs deep. It's tear up time again. Just the other night seemed so real. Rose above the fields, forgotten we could fly. Yeah, I would wait for you till the rose blooms somewhere beyond this dark room, somewhere beyond this night. Such a distant sight. Now I'm looking in back. It's tear up time. Pulling up roots, tangled together. Looking way back. It's tear up time again. Yeah, I'm searching way back, and it's tear up time. Follow my feet on down. I got a bruised up heart. A little more time, I could lose my heart. There's nothing in this for me. No, I don't blame you moving on. If your love was here, now your love is gone. And could your light still shine on me?
Hey, it's my honor to talk to you about the Colorado Hawks. This is a good program helping kids, underprivileged kids, kids with dreams of playing sports, kids who could use help to go to college. The Colorado Hawks produce high-level athletes in boys and girls basketball and girls soccer. The program prides itself on keeping kids off the streets, helping underprivileged youth earn opportunities they might not get otherwise. Most importantly, the Colorado Hawks produce an affordable program that has never turned an athlete away due to expense. The Hawks love Nikola Jokic, just like we do, and currently have a t-shirt selling fundraiser with 100% of the proceeds going right back into this program. Head to Jokic for MVP, or if it's easier to spell, and it is Joker for MVP, J-O-K-E-R for MVP, Get a great high quality shirt that says, you guessed it, Jokic for MVP. And help a great organization at the same time. Let's come together to support a program that has helped to provide so many opportunities for Colorado's young people. That's Jokic for MVP to buy a shirt with all proceeds going to the Colorado Hawks organization. Thank you. It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblaw.com. LLC.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. This is fantastic. An opportunity to speak with Representative Adrienne Benavidez, and she represents the fine people of Adams County. What is it? House District 32. Welcome, Representative. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, I represent House District 32, which is the southwest corner of Adams County, which includes about half of my district is unincorporated Adams County, and the other part is Commerce City, the older part of Commerce City, as well as part of Reunion, which my part goes from Colorado at 104th all the way to Tower Road. So it's a pretty physically large district. Tell us where you grew up. Where did you go to high school and all that? I grew up in Northeast Denver, and I went to Loyola grade school, which I think it just closed its doors a couple of years ago. But when we went, it was from first grade through eighth grade. And then I went my last year of middle school at Maury middle school, and then I went to Manuel High School and graduated from there. Oh, and, my uh, You're a Thunderbolt. I am. I am a very proud Thunderbolt. 
I'm a proud patriot, and when we played basketball against Manuel, all we heard, they dance around the court singing, Manuel, Thunderbolts, Heidi High. And they'd get in our head, <laughs> except when I was a junior, we beat them three times. Anyway, that's my best Manuel story. What about you? <laughs> well, my best Manuel story, if you want to talk about that, was when I graduated in 1972. We beat Wheat Ridge for state championship. Oh, my gosh. And here I thought you were younger than me. I graduated in 74. Yeah, you guys were great for a series of years there. Yeah, exactly. So that's that's cool. So we're both the Denver public school kids. After Manual High, tell everybody what you did. Well, I went to school for a year at CU Boulder and then transferred to UCD. And I tell people very euphemistically that I went to college on the 16-year plan. <laughs> so I'd go sometimes and I wouldn't go because, you know, I paid my way through college. And sometimes, you know, obviously I didn't have the money for it or something else come up. Like during that 16-year period, I also had a child and took a couple years off, uh, Stuff like that. But I graduated from UCD and then went on to law school immediately thereafter at CU Boulder and graduated from CU Law School in 1991. And then I worked for a law firm, which doesn't exist. This tells you how old we are. Places I work don't exist anymore. I have to stop you because you're suddenly older than me. Okay. So I am. <laughs> You're several <laughs> grades ahead of me. Go ahead. I'm two grades ahead of you if you graduated. You're right, two grades. Okay, you're right. That's a okay. world of difference in high school. It is. But I worked when I got out of law school for Gorsuch Curgis. Oh, my goodness. Term. Yeah, so I did that for Tell us about years. the Gorsuch part. That's Neil Gorsuch's father was part of that firm. and. His mother right. worked for the Denver DA's office where I worked. Yeah, such a six degrees of separation is what they say. Well, tell but, us about the Gorsuch Curgis firm. And actually, the son didn't really work there. That son, that's the Supreme Court justice. No, but and, his father, um, right? His father, but by the time I was there, his father wasn't really working. I guess he'd show up with partners sometimes, but I never actually even met his father. I never actually met Neil Gorsuch. How about you? Nope, never met him because he never worked at that firm. When I went to law school, I intended to do tax law. Now, my two summers, I was a summer associate over at Davis Graham and Stubbs, which has a wonderful tax firm. It was the year, I don't you'll probably remember this, I think it was in 90 or 91, that they laid off for the first time ever in their history 12 attorneys. So our summer class that following summer was about 40 and they usually would make offers to about 80, 85%, but they only made two offers. So I was looking for a job and I went to work at Gorsuch, but they didn't really need a tax attorney. So I did bankruptcy work. I worked in the bankruptcy department and in uh, commercial litigation. So that was where I got that background. Then later, I decided to run for office. It was first time I ran for office, but they didn't really appreciate the benefits of having an associate 
run for office. So, <laughs> so I left and I did that for a year or so. And then I think I did a solo practice. Gosh, it's been so long ago for two or three years, contract work. And then I worked for a firm that's still around in the tech center, but it's an Oklahoma firm. Riggs Abney. Oh, it's got a long name. I just remember everybody calls it Riggs Abney. What kind of work did you do for them? Well, I actually was a senior associate and did some really call it supervision. I think it's more direction to younger attorneys. And we did general law practice, all kinds of things. And then I left there and I opened up a nonprofit that was housed over at DU called Color of Justice and did that for about three years. And then Governor Ritter became governor and he asked me to come work with him. And so I went to work and ran the Division of Finance and Procurement in the Department of Personnel and Administration. See, we have that in common. We both worked for Bill Ritter. That's another thing, right? right? And people are surprised at that. But I got to know Bill because of, well, you knew I was on the Public Safety Review Commission for like nine years. Volunteer. It wasn't a job. And obviously, some of the things we worked on were adversarial to the DA's office. I'm remembering that now. That wasn't yeah. a job. That was an adventure. My goodness, what a controversial <laughs> thing. Deciding on alleged police misconduct. That was during the Channel 9 videos of downtown Denver, man. Oh, yeah. Right? Yep. yep, it was. It was. And part of the problem is it was the first oversight body that had not a lot of authority, but it did have subpoena authority and a few other things. And so, you know, we were challenged right away by the police union. We went to court at least twice, maybe three times where they took us to court and they lost or dismissed it. But it was the forerunner to the Office of Independent Monitor. And I was on the task force that developed that and drafted that ordinance to establish that office. Anyway, I worked for Ritter, and that's how I got to know him because of that. But, you know, attorneys can always be adversarial with one another, but they can become uh, friends as well. Hey, I married a woman out of the public defender's office, so go ahead. Yeah. See? Yeah. So you understand completely. So anyway, we uh, became... We became friends, and so he asked me to work for him, and well, I did that. Your dog is then... welcome. You don't have to shush him. <laughs> okay. Please tell us about him. Two little dogs. They're little girls. They're rescue dogs. But when we rescued them, they said they were Chihuahuas, part Chihuahua and part Dachshund. But one of them has tall legs like a Chihuahua but looks like a rat terrier. And the other one, who's supposed to be a Chihuahua, Looks like elongated corky. Oh, my goodness. I mean, that <laughs> sounds so wonderful, <laughs> especially around snack time. Could I have a Chewini, please? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and that's terrible. Yeah. I'm a dog lover with a he and a she outside the studio door. So you got to know Bill Ritter. I need to back you up in this story. Had anybody in your family ever been a lawyer before? No, actually. They hadn't. I was the only lawyer in my family, but not the first one to receive a degree. I had a couple of sisters that got their undergraduate degree, and one of them actually has her doctorate in education. 
but it took me a while. Like I said, I went on a 16-year plan for my undergraduate degree. That's okay, but something got instilled in you. At what point did you say, hey, I want to be a lawyer? Why did you decide that? Well, I didn't really know any lawyers till I was older, but I wanted to. And this is going to sound silly, but I did two things that my mom reminded me that I said I wanted to be a lawyer early on. When I was in seventh grade, I had my tonsils taken out. And when the bill came, I asked my mom to look at it. And I looked at it and I went through it with the fine tooth comb. And I said, oh, you got to tell them I didn't take any of those aspirins that they said they gave me. So we shouldn't be charged for that. And I, I told her I'd go argue the bell for her. So that was her indication. Nice. And when I was in high school, we had to, in our English class, we had to write our own obituary. And so my obituary was that I will admit this. It's the only time I've ever really, really liked a celebrity. And it was Joe Namath back in 72. <laughs> yeah. Sure so my, yeah. And my obituary said that I was a big time corporate lawyer and I had married a retired, his name wasn't Joe Namath, but a retired quarterback from New York. And we were at a game and something happened and it was the massive crowd ran over me and I died. But when I was telling about myself, it was all about being a lawyer, too. So Married to Joe Namath, who won the Super Bowl, if I recall right, in 69. <laughs> and about 72, yep. he was posing in Cosmopolitan magazine. And you decided you wanted to be a lawyer married to a guy like Joe Namath. Yeah, apparently. That was in high school. And so I just always wanted to do that. And I just did it, you know? <laughs> I think fondly of my days at CU Law School. I'm glad I went there. That's where I met Bill Ritter. We were classmates and started uh -huh. the same day at the Denver DA's office. What about you? Did you have a good experience? In my mind, CU Law is a lot better environment for a guy like me. I like it a little smaller than CU undergrad, which is too big. Do you agree? Yeah. I do agree. I didn't like CU Boulder undergrad. I did like UCD downtown. And as far as the law school, yeah, I liked the law school a lot. You know, I had a lot of good friends. I commuted from Denver every day, but, you know, there was still a lot of friends and I was up there a lot. You can't help but be at the law school a lot if you're in law school. And if you were living in the north side of Denver or Adams County, it's not very far to Boulder. Yeah, it wasn't too bad. I was living in Park Hill at that time, so it wasn't bad. Boy, I have so many memories of Park Hill and Park Hill Golf Course with my old man, but I want to find out about your parents. Were they proud of you and your educational success and your sibling with a doctorate? Tell us about your family and what the expectations were. You know, I think my parents, and they both passed away, my parents truly believed in education, but they grew up in New Mexico, and Spanish was their first language, and the teachers all spoke English, so they struggled, but, you know, they learned just like 
all their friends and siblings and everybody in New Mexico. You just get through it. But my mother, she went to fifth grade and my dad went to eighth grade. But that didn't mean they both could read and write in English and Spanish, and they believed in education. I mean, that's why we all went to Catholic school through eighth grade, and then uh, two of my siblings went in high school, but I kind of had enough of that. <laughs> that's why I went, and they transferred over. They only went for a year, and then they went to manual. So my parents were very proud of all of us, and and you know, I have a couple of siblings that didn't graduate from college. I mean, they graduated from high school, but all during school, I mean, we had a regime. You got home from school, you couldn't go out and play until you did your homework. And at dinner time, my dad would ask everybody, what'd you do in school today? And you had to have some kind of answer. And they always went to every program at school. They went to every teacher conference. So they were very involved in our education. It sounds like they were wonderful parents. And where did you get your political instinct? Well, my undergraduate degree was in political science. And so I always had thought about it. Actually, it wouldn't have been for Don Modest. Don Modest convinced me to run the first time. And it was the seat he had held in North Denver. I lost, but I ran because of that. That was a way of getting involved and learning it. Although I had volunteered, I volunteered in 72, my first year, because that in 72, I always remember, others might not, because I turned 18 in 72. And that was the year that 18-year-olds got to vote. Right. George McGovern versus Richard Nixon. Yeah. And I worked a little bit on McGovern's, but I also worked on Pat Schroeder's campaign. Wow. Back then, yeah, volunteering. And I off and on volunteered on different campaigns. But you got active. And was it just a natural you were going to be a Democrat? Well, <laughs> I've always believed more in Democratic politics and policies. My dad was a Democrat. And my parents always, always voted. And, you know, when you're younger, they actually went to the voting booth and they take us with them, you know? So we, everybody in my family always votes because they always did that. And it just wasn't a question. But my dad was a Democrat, but my mother was a Republican. And so they would say they just cancel each other out. But all of us became Democrats. And that's fascinating. Yeah, one sister went into the military. I think she was first a Democrat, then she switched, and then she switched back when she came out. <laughs> That's fascinating because there is some consternation on the part of the Democrats that they did not win a larger percentage of the Hispanic vote. I'm sure you've heard that. What's going on there? You know, I've read some articles. I really don't know, and it's more in other parts of the country, although there is some here. There's a growing conservatism, and Latinos are not homogenous, obviously. We vote different ways. And from when, back in those days, primarily it was Mexican-Americans that were here. And you could find some Puerto Ricans, especially in the East, and then Cubans in the Southeast. But things have changed so much. People have come in from various places, and there are more Latino-owned businesses of people from all over. 
And I mean, there's still not enough, but there's more. And so people come from other places with different perspectives. I would be interested in seeing those numbers per ethnic background within Latinos because they're all put together. Well, let me probe because I'm ignorant about Christianity and Catholicism, but it's my observation that a lot of Trumpism has a little bit of a religious component and that evangelicals and some social conservative Catholics say, well, Donald Trump, he appointed, you know, pro-life justices. We're going to go with him. And they really got inroads into the Hispanic community with talk of socialism on the part of Democrats. Is any of that right, Adrian? You know, I've heard that. I think some of it's right to some extent, but I don't think it's across the board because I do have one Puerto Rican in my family, a sister-in-law, and she is very strong against abortion. But she's a Democrat, so that does change her perspective somewhat, but she still votes Democrat. So I don't know, and I think there's a lot more. I mean, I was raised a Catholic. I don't consider myself a Catholic, but, you know, the church is making, under this pope, lots of changes. Last year, we passed, um, I sponsored the repeal of the death penalty, you know? And the Pope had come out with, because Catholics before had still opposed it, but some of them, they're conservative, the eye for the eye and all of that. But it was helpful to us for the Vatican to have taken a position on that. And they've taken positions, I mean, not at least to be more of an acceptance of, say, homosexuality. So I think they're making some changes. And I know a lot of people, I would say everybody in my family, probably a couple of us that are Catholic, but they still vote Democrat. So I think it's an issue, but I'm not always sure it's the defining issue. Well, that's fascinating. In your family, all the different personalities, did it get bad in your family with Trump? My family, nobody supported Trump. (laughs) That's a sign of great wisdom in a family. (laughs) I think so. Have you ever seen anybody blow up the political system the way Donald Trump and Trumpism has? Not in my lifetime, no. I haven't seen that. But, you know, he blew it up. But what's surprising is that there's something that a large number of people are missing. Sometimes I think it's a lot of fear. You know, that people are fearing something in his manner of how he would approach things, even though he had nothing to back it up, was just to be out there and in people's faces that that's a way to overcome some fears. Because I don't think anybody who supports him, and maybe I shouldn't say anybody, but many that support him can defend him. You know, and some of his views, because they're just indefensible. Right, but 74 million Americans voted for him, and it frightened me because I've decided that Donald Trump is a racist, and he's a bully, he's a criminal. He's so bad in so many ways that 
it's hard for me to look at my fellow Americans in America quite the same way. What about you? I mean, aren't you a little stunned that that many people would put up with his bigotries? It is stunning to me, but you know what? I think of the things like the Jim Crow laws. You know, I mean, even here in this state, there were signs up that proprietors of businesses that no Mexicans or dogs allowed. Now, do you remember that? Because you're, what, two years older than me, but I don't remember that in Denver. You don't remember it because the signs were down by the time we were there. But right. my parents moved here in 39, and they remembered oh, it. Oh, yeah. No question. I mean, Denver had the Klan in the 20s when my grandfather first got out of law school. So without a doubt, Denver's had a racist past. But for you and me, we were part of the first desegregation. And we interacted with each other, and there were no, I mean, we played golf at Park Hill. and. But your question was, why would people be accept and vote for him? And I, I, what I'm saying is that it's not really all that shocking that people do. And most of racism is fear, at least from my perspective. And I think uh, not only racism, but thinking of people as other than that and buying into that, it's lack of understanding, but it doesn't surprise me. And the other candidates out there weren't very strong from the Republican side. So they're supporting him is is not that shocking. I mean, even look at what happened in January, whether you think it was, there was like 30,000 people in D.C. protesting that day on January 6th. And there, I've heard 800 to 1,000 or so going into the building, into the Capitol. And I mean, I would never think of anybody using a flag or any other kind of weapon they have and beating officers. I mean, that's just unheard of that people would do that. But their belief in this man, at least some of them have said, is just hard to understand. But I think people have always done things because they believe in some figure, but it's not surprising. And I think some of them are understanding this may not, not all of them. There's still many that love him. It is shocking. And to run through the Capitol with those Confederate flags and notice yeah. that none of the others did anything about it because they were yeah. down with that kind of bigotry. And it's just a remarkable moment in American history, you're a political science major since 2016. When you got elected, you are serving in a state capitol. It had to hit home. Did you think, gosh, I'm a legislator. Is my job dangerous? Could it happen here? You know, obviously, those were concerns of the legislature. But, you know, we talked it through, took precautions, the state patrol, the police, which it's the Denver police in, it, for the state capitol, you know, had plans and we followed through with those plans. So we were prepared. I mean, obviously, you always worry, but I didn't feel uncomfortable going there. My days that I don't go in, like tomorrow, are snow days. 
I'm more worried about the snow then. We will get to the snow, no doubt about it. But I want to get to George Floyd because you did serve on the commission in Denver reviewing allegations of police brutality. What did you think when you saw the George Floyd situation? And did you realize that was going to be the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of America's attitude toward this kind of thing? Well, when I saw it, and you've seen a lot of videos of situations, and there's usually with police officers and others, that there's always mostly some kind of explanation. Well, the officer thought they saw something. That's why they acted that way. And, and you know, you were a prosecutor in the DA's office. You know the kinds of videos I'm talking about. But I think this video of George Floyd's death I had never seen something like that because, you know, you saw him walking over to the car and everything was going okay and then not wanting to get in. And the next thing, you know, is they uh, attempt to control him to get him in there and then he wouldn't. He put him on the ground. But I had never seen anything like that. And, you know, I, I used to know everything in the operations manual for the police department and saw how police officers react, but he wasn't doing anything. And he's staying there, keeping him on the ground for nine full minutes without anything. And with three other officers just watching. Exactly. That's what made this so, I think when other people saw it, said, wait a minute, he's not doing anything. You know, it's the same like with the Elijah McClain situation. That young man didn't do anything, and he's begging them, saying, you know, I don't do guns. I am just want to be on my way. I don't do that stuff. Yeah, he's very polite as he's getting the hell beat out of him, <laughs> you know. And that's how it was with George Floyd. He wasn't doing anything. And the others were telling him, you know, he's saying he can't breathe. You can't do these things. Get off of him. And there was nothing to prevent that officer from trying to get him up. Because he could say, yeah, I had to keep my leg on him because he's flailing around and I'm worried. I'm just trying to get him to calm down. None of that was going on. He, he should have let him up. Right. Yeah. He should have let him up and got him in the car. Derek Chauvin is now on trial. I've been listening to jury selection occasionally on the local Minneapolis radio station. I have to tell you that it's really interesting from a legal perspective because you have a lawyer representing Derek Chauvin. You have a prosecutor. You have a judge. You have jurors. And now they're in jury selection, and there's a lot of scrutiny on whether there will be black people on the jury. But you're a lawyer, Adrian. So if you were the attorney for Chauvin, would you think it'd be wise for him to have black people on the jury? And isn't there sort of an inherent conflict? Well, you're not supposed to eliminate people based on their race, but I'm representing a white guy accused of choking out a black guy, George Floyd. Do you see what I mean? All the competing considerations for the various lawyers involved? Well, yeah, but those considerations are for any time you sit at jury uh, and panel a jury that you look at those things. And if there was a concern, because I, I haven't followed as much as you, and I don't know if they've thought 
a different venue because of that or anything. And I don't know the population in the area and what the numbers are. I think obviously it shouldn't be an all white jury. And I don't think any of the attorneys would expect that. And there's, well, and you've done lots more litigation. Well, I have, but, but it's, it's still confusing. And when you say you don't want an all-white jury, would it be okay if it was nine whites and three Hispanics? Well, I don't think that's what you look at. No, but I'm just saying as a prosecutor, as a trial attorney, and we're all going to talk about the racial composition of the jury. And I had it told to me, and it proved true in my career, I would have no hesitation of putting, for example, Hispanics on a jury where a black guy was a defendant or black people on a jury where a Hispanic was a defendant because sometimes growing up in Denver, you would sense that they weren't always necessarily aligned with each other. Do you know what I'm saying? You went to Manual High School. Tell me about the state of black and Hispanic relations when you were growing up in Denver? Well, I think it's that thing, racism and biases exist in all, all groups, I would think. Correct. And I've always thought it is what you're accustomed to. If you're afraid of something, but it's more because you don't know. I mean, <laughs> I'll give you a great example. My year at Boulder, right out of high school, I had a roommate, it was a strange year, I had four roommates in one year, but one that I had second semester was a Mexican-American woman, and she and she was like a few years older than me. I would have been 18 or 19 by then that spring, and she was widowed and then decided to go to college, and she was, so she was only in her early 20s, but because I did go to manual, I had black friends as well as Latino friends, and I made white friends. And she came from the San Luis Valley, and there weren't blacks around there. You know, this is like in 1973. And so she had told me a story when she was a kid that they would sell vegetables and they would go door to door, like in the truck, and the kids would run up because the houses aren't close together, a black person, and she was shocked. And she ran back to the car screaming at her dad that, I don't know what that person is. And because they're just not used to it. No, you and it's such fear. a good point. I, I think part of it is fear, but I would put above that ignorance. Most bigotry yeah. and prejudice, it's just a sign of ignorance. Right. So if I was trying to pick a jury, I would be looking for those kinds of things. But most people now, they see it on TV. But even, you know, back then, your TV choices weren't many. No, it's fascinating. But Minnesota has some very permissive rules that allow us to listen to jury selection and you'd think that people would be identified by their voice. They're not showing the jurors, but they're showing the lawyers. It's fascinating. You and I did go to Denver Public Schools during some controversial times. We had a race riot at GW. I'm sure you'll remember that. What do you think about desegregation through forced busing? 
Did it work for Denver? Did it not? I remember when it ended, Wellington Webb won the mayor's race saying, guess what? I went to Manual High and busing isn't working and it's got to end. And that helped propel him over Norm Early. Do you remember all that? What do you think about Denver's history and was forced desegregation through busing a good idea or a bad idea? Well, actually, I did a tribute for a woman on Monday, a woman named Josephine Perez. She was the only Latino named plaintiff in the Keys lawsuit in 1969. And what the lawsuit really was about was Rachel Noel, who was the first black woman on the school board, had passed some resolutions to force integration in the Northeast area, Park Hill. And then there had been some changes on the school board and they were pulling back and not wanting to do it. And then they ended up getting a majority that didn't want to do it. And they sued over enforcement of those resolutions. But in doing that, I think there were people like one lawyer I knew, and he's a great lawyer. I know you know him, Ed Kahn, was a young attorney that was on that case, and a whole bunch of others. But that case was also, ultimately, they weren't going to do it. And I read this law review article last week, which was very interesting by one of the lawyers. I think it's Connor or Connery. Anyway, after they passed that, I think the suit had already been filed and the board had tried to rescind those three. Well, they did, but they sued and it went to the 10th circuit and they tried all the way up to you know, started lower level, but got to the 10th Circuit right before school was supposed to start. The 10th Circuit had said they want an injunction to move forward on the integration of Park Hill. The lower courts wouldn't give it to them. 10th Circuit said, no, we're going to just let the school year go this way. And there were already plans to do this. And so they went, this lawyer went, uh, they had already prepared the motion and served it that Friday afternoon. And he flew to D.C. and was waiting outside the door at the Supreme Court chambers when the first guy that got there had him come in and talk to him. And it was the clerk of the court. And I think his last name was Davis. Anyway, he told him what was going on and what then that they had served this motion to get the injunction and that the court, they called in part of this article, they called Justice Marshall and his wife had said he was out tending his roses. So the clerk didn't want to bother him. And so then they called, I think it was Brennan and he was coming into the officer. He was there and they went and talked to him and they had briefs filed by DPS and all of that. And then he reversed the 10th circuit and made them go forward on it. So they had started that before the full case was heard. But when the full case later was heard, and it had to go through the whole thing, Mrs. Perez, one of the things she talked about was she lived on 11th and Calumet, and her kids were supposed to go, you know, were and did go to West High School and Baker. And none of them had like ball fields or anything like that. They didn't have 
for kids to go on field trips. So she got some others together and they raised money and talked to the city to be able to get them to go over to like the auditorium arena, the precursor to the DCPA to see some plays and do these things. They started some intramural leagues so the kids could do those things. And she talked about that and ultimately the Supreme Court's decision recognized that, you know, this is about Northeast and Park Hill, but it's clear from a lot, not didn't say specifically hers, because there's probably other testimony too, but that this is a problem throughout the city, that there are inadequacies in some of the schools. I mean, because one of the arguments that DPS made that didn't go very far was, hey, the schools are already integrated. Even the ones in Northeast Denver, you got blacks and Mexican-American kids in there. They're not the same. And it was one of the first times the court did look at them together, right? not just separately. So I think it made changes, and not that got rid of all of the inadequacies. And I didn't go under busing. Busing didn't start. Actually, I thought it started the year after you. No, no. It started at Hill Junior High for us. People were bused in. I lived close enough to GW to not get bused, but I would say it started when I was in seventh grade, and the riot at GW yeah. happened in 1970 or 70. Yeah, 70. When I was in ninth that grade. That was the resolution. It wasn't based on the lawsuit because the lawsuit wasn't even filed till 69, and the Supreme Court decision wasn't until 73. Oh, I, okay. I think that's probably right. But in terms of Miss Noel, her name came up because General Maurice Rose, who gave his life for our country, and then the Jewish community honored him by building a hospital, and they wanted to allow a black doctor to practice, and they convinced Dr. Noel to move to Denver because he could become a practicing doctor at Rose Medical Center. So that connects the Noel family to Denver and your great story. In the end, I'm glad I grew up in Denver in a more integrated environment. I think it was good for me and for the city. And yet, by the time Wellington Webb said it was enough of it, I think he was right about that. And he had the sentiment of the city. It was interesting that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris got into it in a debate about busing, yeah. a subject so near and dear to the people of Denver. And there were no easy answers because it disrupted a lot of black families and Hispanic families who wanted their kids in their neighborhood school. But as I recall, it was the inequities of Thomas Jefferson and GW having nice swimming pools and better grounds to play football and baseball. And it wasn't fair to the kids at West and North and Manual. That's what it was about, right? Yep, exactly. So, I, I mean, I agree with Wellington Webb that it didn't achieve everything we wanted, but I think it did make some changes. And, and well, the whole Heath case was the first time the court had found de facto discrimination that, uh, you know, they mentioned how Brown versus Board of Education, that was about in the South because all, they had laws that required the segregation. We didn't have laws. This was all done on policy, and that way other cities 
and states throughout the country use that Keyes case because of the de facto discrimination finding in it. And it's interesting to think about Boulder, Colorado, where you did not feel that comfortable, and they just had a riot up there about a week ago. They're supposed to be so progressive up there, but it's been said that blacks and Hispanics don't necessarily feel comfortable. Is that your experience? Well, again, I went up there from the fall of 72 till the spring of of 73 when I was there. And I, you know, didn't have a lot of money. So I'd take the bus home on the weekends and I had a, a weekend job and then I'd go back. So I wasn't doing a whole lot up there. But yeah, there weren't a lot of people that looked like me. But in law school, I felt fine. But, you know, the way well, you know where the law school is and it's kind of confined, you don't really have to do anything with the rest of the campus. Correct. I agree. And you live now in Adams County. Am I right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Tell us about Adams County, because I've never lived there. My brother was a past president of the Adams County Bar Association. I go there occasionally for court cases. But you were a Denver girl who moved to Adams County. Tell us why. The address here is Denver because it's unincorporated. But it's Adams. And it's two blocks outside the Denver border. But it's Adams County. And, you know, Denver is a city and county. Everybody in Denver knows about the city and council, and it's for everyone. But for us... We have county commissioners, and it took me a while to get adjusted to that and how that works, especially living in unincorporated Adams, because there are a lot of cities, like in my district, there's Commerce City is the only city, and they have their own, their municipality, and they have their own city council, and they have everything, a mayor and everything like that associated with a small community. But the unincorporated areas are overseen by our county commissioners. We have five county commissioners. So it's a different kind of politics. And, I mean, our it's very local, though, just kind of like Denver is. You know everything that's going on. But it happens in a number of locations because we have Thornton and uh, Westminster, Federal Heights. I'm missing one more that all have their own North Plain, their own uh, city councils and all of that that operate in their own mayors. So it's a little different. And then they all work with the county commissioners. I think that's cool. How does it break down politically? (laughs) That's the other nice thing for me. It was sort of half and half between Democrats and Republicans, but... We started to make moves in 2014 when I came here in 2016. And in 2018, now all of the county offices are held by Democrats. I think you have Donald Trump to thank for that. There's something about him (laughs) that was just toxic for Colorado, and I would assume places like Adams County. Well, it depends. I mean, our politics, like... You would be shocked. You you knew where the old um, dog track was. But Commerce City has a Republican mayor, 
and have a Republican majority just by one vote, but they have a majority. Fascinating. Uh-huh. Let me ask you this. Do you feel like you've suffered discrimination for being Hispanic? You know me well enough that I don't suffer much easily. And so if people have said things to me, I call them on it. It doesn't mean it doesn't happen. I'll give you an example. A job I had when I worked at IRS, we did a lease back, had a building built for collections. So I was one of the supervisors and the division had come out. We had like several groups and we worked from eight in the morning till eight at night, different groups. And I remember we had a meeting. We'd been out there about a month and the division director came in and said, you know, since we're here from eight to eight, you need to tell all your employees to make sure they put everything locked in their desk at night because of the taxpayer information, the confidentiality. We couldn't leave papers out about taxpayers. And then he said, because, you know, Pedro and his guys are here cleaning at night. So I raised my hand and I said, what's Pedro's last name? And he knew right away. It was a racial slur. He had no clue, but it was easy to say those things. Or honestly, you don't even know what happens. And I'm going to talk to somebody who used the term in a hearing we had today about elections. And he used a term I had not heard, which was called, and maybe you've heard it, jungle primaries. Have you heard that term? Yes. And I said, I had never heard. I said, what does that mean? And somebody finally said, it's probably somewhat racist. It means how everybody will act like savages or tribal people and then go after one another. You never know with certain words whether somebody means something bad. There's a celebrated incident right now in the NBA, a backup center with Miami Heat named Myers Leonard was playing Call of Duty with a bunch of kids, one of whom was recording it, and he apparently suffered a fatal mistake in the game, and he yelled the K-word, an anti-Semitic slur, and then the B-word, an anti-female slur right after it, and he's been suspended from the NBA, and everybody's wondering what to do about it. It's interesting how he put together this K-word slamming Jews, and in his apology, he said, I didn't know what I was saying or what it meant. And honestly, that horrible word against Jews, I don't even know what it means, but I know it's a bad word used to denigrate Jews, and we all know words that are used in that way, and certainly the B-word is used to disparage women. It's a a long-winded way of me asking you this. Do you feel like you've suffered more discrimination as a Hispanic, perhaps in your life, or as a female? Because even back at CU Law School, when we studied, you know, the basis for suspect classification and strict scrutiny is applied to race, but not to gender discrimination. Do you know what I mean? So I, I, I wonder... Do you feel more like women are discriminated against or my people of color or is it different or is it the same? Help me out here. Well, I think 
there's not a lot anymore of very directed racism where you can spot it and say this is occurring, that it's a lot more of subtle things. It seems like you go into a store and people are watching you. I mean, I, I told this story when I ran the bill to get rid of Columbus Day about Nikki Haley. When Nikki Haley removed the Confederate flag from the Capitol there, her, she told a story about her father, who was um, Indian, um, East Indian descent. And so I assume, she didn't say it, but I assume dark or skinned. And she said she remembers going to, when she was a little girl with him, to a fruit and vegetable stand. And they, she called it stand, but I think it was like a, a bigger stand that was sort of like a building that you could walk around and see things. And she said they were walking around to pick out some vegetables and fruit, and the sheriffs showed up and talked to the owner and then just sort of followed us around. And she said her dad never said anything, and he paid for his purchases, and they left. But she knew what was going on, and she said she didn't really know how to respond or could never say anything to her dad, but she knew it was racist why they were following them. And, I mean, that's happened to probably most people of color, you know, but you can't fight it every time something happens, but you know it exists. And you know it exists for oftentimes younger people. So I don't know and I, that when you say is one type of discrimination worse than another and when people experience it, because women the same way, you know, as a woman, especially as a woman attorney, I remember in my early years, we would be talking with a group and if I was the only woman there with, I was married to an attorney then, it was like I could say something and it wouldn't mean anything that the dock was more between the men, you know? And that if you ask them, they say, oh, well, I've known him and I'm comfortable with him, but you know, it's more than that. So I think women experience a lot and so do people of color, so do people with certain religious backgrounds. But I would never get into that, not a game of who gets it worse. I think it depends on who you are, where you are, what the situation is. It's a fascinating dynamic. The whole world watched that Meghan Markle interview. I don't know if you saw it or understand uh -uh. the hubbub. She had said that members of the royal family were wondering what the skin color of the baby would be, which could be really racist or innocuous. I don't know if you heard about it or what your take yeah. was. I'm a lot darker skinned than my wife, so we were curious about the complexions of our kids when they came out, you know, just to be curious. Well, and that's true. And in my family, we run the gamut from my dad was the darkest, then me, to my mother had red hair, my oldest sister had blonde hair. I have a brother in between, so we run this gamut of different colors in the same family. So it's not surprising, but it comes to what 
where people are asking from and not knowing who it was. Maybe it was just curious, but in reality, you can't ignore that she is mixed race, and this is the first time in their family that there's been a person of mixed race. And that's really where it's coming from. It's not like you and your wife wondering what color your child will be. Correct. It's different, and there's been insensitivity. It's been a real Rorschach test. People on the right think that she spoke out of turn and that she's exaggerating her symptoms. She also talked about some suicidal ideation, and people on the left are more on her side. And I'm in a mood, especially after experiencing the Trump era, to say her feelings are legitimate. And an issue that's near and dear to you, and you've introduced legislation, has to do with the way Native Americans feel when they are portrayed as mascots for various uh, athletic teams and high schools. So to me, the most important thing is how Native Americans feel about that portrayal. And there's been some interesting research on that subject. You know all about it, Adrian. You're the expert. Tell us about it. Well, I don't know that I'm the expert, but I am one of the sponsors of the mascot bill. And, you know, it is a thing that we can pretend. And Bartles, who I, I like, wrote an article that she still feels that Lamar Savages really care about Indians and are very respectful. Their mascot picture is not a big and like, who is it, Chief Waffle or somebody that some team uses? The Cleveland Indians have, are going to just be the Cleveland baseball team, much like the Washington Redskins decided exactly. that was enough. And as for Lamar, there's quite a battle going there. Lynn Bartles has been a guest on this show, what was it, about two months ago. But I'm inclined to go with the people of Lamar. A lot of them are saying, hey, come on. And I think they're... Ritual cheap is cheap, ugly, you know. They, so. That was, they told us they got rid of that. Oh, okay, they got rid of several that. Several years ago. And that's why they have this newer picture that is supposed to be, it's still a, a, a Indian in a headdress and not big nose, but just normal features. And that's their way of being respectful. And that savage just comes from the heart. It's like, wait a minute. Savages does not come from anybody's heart. You wouldn't want to be called something like that. So it, how people can think that says that's respectful, just that term. And so what it's come down to is that a lot of schools have changed the name in Colorado, but there are holdouts like Lamar and what is it, Eaton still has Eaton Reds? Yeah. And you guys are going to do something about it if you get enough votes in the legislature. What's your solution? Well, the bill that we're proposing would say you shouldn't have them, period. You shouldn't have Indians as mascots. And part of it was based on a study that's been commissioned that's found that Native Americans don't appreciate it. And beyond that, it leads to some imagery and superiority feelings that really are antithetical to treating people with dignity. 
So right. modern times call for, you know, modern sensitivities, right? Exactly. So I think there are some exceptions to it. Like if there is, well, this is going to be an amendment to the bill. If there is a school, we have two schools actually named after sovereign nations, the Cheyenne Wells School, and there's another school, the Rapaho. And at least the Rapaho has reached an agreement with the Rapaho Nation. And you know, well, you understand, you don't want to do something where you're in the middle of a sovereign nation agreement. So that's an exception if it is a school like that. And there may be an exception for some schools on tribal land. But otherwise, it's just there shouldn't be. When this bill was attempted in 2015, it didn't pass. And the, I think it was Hickenlooper, did an executive order and set up a task force of a bunch of different people, and they had some hearings. And their conclusion was the same. You shouldn't have mascots about Indians. So this is not a new thing. I just think about my tribe, and if there was a team called the New Jersey Jews, I don't yeah. think I'd like that. No, right? nope, I don't think you would either. <laughs> and nobody does. I mean, maybe not nobody, because you can always find somebody who will say, I don't well, mind. that's and, true. Uh, that's true. You know, we're looking for more Jewish athletes all the time anyways. And my dad always said Jim Thorpe was the greatest athlete he ever saw, and he was a Native American. And it's just fascinating to me to drive around Colorado, which I did last week. And I think about the Rio Grande, which starts in Colorado at Del Norte, which was, and I went to, on the old Spanish trail through Delta, where the Uncompagra meets the Gunnison. And you think about how the border of Mexico used to be in Colorado. Do you think about that very much? Oh, of course. We think about it all the time. I mean, there's something in our communities that, you know, we're not immigrants. that We didn't cross the border. We lived here. The border moved. And there's a good book out that was written, uh, please, and P-L-E-A-S and something. But it's a little bit of a history of the legislature from a Hispanic perspective. And it basically talked about when Colorado became a state called Pleas and Petitions by Virginia Sanchez. And she was is the wife of Tony Hernandez, who was a legislator, too. Oh, I know Tony. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. But the border, they wanted Colorado to be a square state. So they took part of what was the New Mexico Territory to make it part of Colorado. Even though those people were part of the New Mexico Territory and they petitioned the federal government to change that and they wouldn't do it. So even how Colorado got here, but it's not, your question had to be about, do we think about it? And we do because these things, what we hear a lot, go back to where you came from. Well, you know, we've always been here. My parents, we can go back where they were in northern New Mexico all that time, <laughs> you know, and the generations before them. So I don't know. So it's something that we we always think about. 
All right, here's what I'm thinking about. I was worried for you and our beloved state of Colorado. I thought, oh my gosh, we've been shut down for a year. And I thought that the coffers would be dry, but we found out that Colorado's doing okay financially. Isn't that great? How did it happen? Well, you know, (laughs) we did cut back a lot because our projections, and we get projections from our economists in our legislative services branch and the governor's office, their budget people do a quarterly projections and all the projections and that they're projections, we don't know. But what we found is that one thing, even though people were home a lot, they could still spend money. And because of the Wayfair decision a couple of years ago, the Supreme Court decision that allows taxing of internet sales, our sales tax stayed up, you know? And they underestimated, because if you recall, when COVID first started, like in March, and taxes were due April 15th, well, they extended the due date of that. I think until like August. And they expected people wouldn't have the money to pay their tax, but they did, you know? So we didn't have that downturn. And the more recent projections have talked about people, a lot of people were able to work from home and keep their jobs. The people at the lower end, the lowest paid people that did mostly service work, retail work, they're the ones that were hurting the most. And all the projections show it's going to be more difficult for them to come back. But others, like, I mean, I worked this whole year because we could work from home. You know, I didn't have to. A lot of women had to leave the workforce because once they couldn't take their kids to daycare or school, somebody has to be home with them. Somebody has to teach them. So for all of those, it's a much more difficult time, and all those projections are true. But for the state, we were thinking, the the economists that did those, were thinking that people wouldn't be able to pay their taxes, and taxes make up 60% of our general fund, uh, income tax, individual income taxes. You guys have some other new revenue streams that are not necessarily available in other states. Marijuana just hit $10 billion in sales. What do you think of that? Yeah, nobody expected that either. Nobody expected that either. So that now as the projections came through and all those monies came in that they never projected, that's where that windfall is from. But, and we're going to get another projection towards the end of this month. Might not next week, I think it's the following week. And so that'll be more telling because they're seeing this did not have the impact on the marijuana. It didn't have impact on a lot of levels of earnings for some people. It was just at the lower end. But here's the other source of great income. And I've had Alec Garnett on praising him to the health because I'm a consumer of sports wagering. And during the pandemic, 
That was a great source of entertainment. It continues to be, and I think you guys set up a great system. I'm happy with what's going on in the legislature. Now that we know you have plenty of money, that means that it's happy days for you Democrats. What do you think it should be spent on? Well, I think the things that we contemplated, and, you know, the governor saw some things, and then legislators put in some ideas. And I think there's a number of things that will help stimulate the economy and other things like I think the biggest pot was going to shovel-ready infrastructure projects along I-70 because that'll put people to work. So those are important. Helping some uh, businesses that have really been hurt, like in a special session, I think, I can't remember if it was three or four months or however many months of sales tax relief, where they didn't have to remit the first 2000 of sales tax. Do you feel like the pandemic, can you see the other side now? I can. I'm just starting to feel like, do you think we're going to have boom times? How do you feel about Joe Biden and Kamala Harris? Are you optimistic about the future? That's the way I want to end it with you, Representative Benavidez, because now that I know you're my elder, I'm going to refer to you with considerable respect. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I too am optimistic. I think I, I just want us to be careful. Uh, you know, as we all get our shots and we move, then we need to really be careful about how we do that. I'm, I'm glad I don't live in Texas, but I think our economy was going well, and it's not going to be where it was in 2019, and there'll be some things to make up, but I think we'll get there, and I'm happy about that. One of my daughters is a teacher, and they've all gotten their shots at her school. And most of the schools, I think. So, you know, it was difficult for all the kids. So I'm, I'm positive. I think it'll, everything is going to not be back to normal, but it's headed that way. All right. Since you're older and wiser than me, here's the biggest <laughs> prediction you have to make. What's that? We are doing this interview on Thursday evening. We have rarely heard such warnings about a blizzard. Governor Polis came on today telling us that once it starts snowing, it could get bad. Right now, our show will drop Saturday morning when it gets going. Do you think this is going to be the big one? Or, hey, come on, we're from Colorado. This ain't going to be that big a deal. Well, I'm like everybody else, heard the different predictions. But everything I heard was it's going to be a lot of snow. But the temperatures are still relatively high in the 30s and stuff. So I think because it's going to be it's going to be a wet spring snow, and then once the sun comes out on Monday, it'll make a huge difference. So I think um, there will be a lot of snow. It'll accumulate, but you know it's actually lucky it's on a weekend. Right, you know, it's lucky people the trees have their blossoms on it and all of that. Exactly. Jared Polis exactly. is so perfect. I can't wait to have him on, but you'll probably see him before me. He kept talking about foliage on the tree. And I'm thinking of Reynolds wrap or something, you know, Reynolds aluminum foil. Tell him it's foliage. Okay. Something. <laughs> 
if you get a chance, tell them, hey, your buddy Craig said it's foliage, not foliage. I'm pretty sure about that. I think I learned it at CU Law School. But anyway, Adrian Benavidez, you've been such a delight. Thanks a lot for coming into Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Oh, well, it was fun. It wasn't what I expected, so it was a lot of fun, Craig, and good to catch up with you. It was great. Good luck at the legislature, and I'll see you around campus, okay? All right. Great. Thanks. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And so that's our show. Thanks to my guest, Adrian Benavidez. Welcome to the lounge. Thanks for coming. Dave Gunders, you tore it up again with Tear Up Time. And Mitchell Byers, I think you are terrific. May you have a great life as a Boulder reporter. Thank you for listening. Have a great week. See you next Saturday. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show. Craig Silverman.